Hello, welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Today I present a very special conversation with John Serzan. If you don't know, John is an American anarchist and primitivist eco-philosopher and author. His works criticise agricultural civilization as inherently oppressive, and he advocates drawing upon the ways of life of hunter-gatherers as an inspiration for what a free society should look like. Subjects of his criticism have included domestication, language, symbolic thought, such as mathematics and art, and even the concept of time. His six major books are Elements of Refusal, Future Primitive and Other Essays, Running on Emptiness, Against Civilization, Twilight of the Machines, and Why Hope the Sand Against Civilization. And his most recent book is called When We Are Human, Notes from the Age of Pandemics. That was published last year. In this conversation, John and I spoke a lot about education and technology, especially how the latter is influencing the former. This was a very enjoyable discussion, one that I think is also unique. I haven't seen many conversations like this with John that go into this much detail with this many different topics. We speak about intelligence, uh, the chasms in leftist thought that need to be filled, Noam Chomsky's erroneous critique of technology, and much, much more. So without further ado, I give you a thinker for our time, John Zerzan. So, John, the first question that I always start by asking is, what do you think it means to be truly educated? Well, the standard uh, definition is um, to equip you for your place in mass society, but uh, that's not at all adequate in my view. I mean, it's the problem with mass forced schooling is, is what it's the requirement for mass society and uh, mass society is <laughs> is failing grandly, it seems to me. And, you know, people do search for other models for the meaning of education uh, outside of the dominant mode. And uh, that's truly necessary. I mean, I, I think about this in terms of various things, in terms of postmodernism, technology, and so forth, the things mm -hmm. that seem to me to work against being truly educated. If you could point to someone who you think is truly educated, or perhaps point to a few people, um, we can uh, illustrate by our example. Um, who would you point to? Well, the critics, the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> important voices who have uh, raised questions about uh, what it is to be educated, what is society. It's, you know, Ivan Illich, Theodore Adorno, uh, Benjamin, uh, quite a lot of people have, have influenced me. You know, it comes down to basic questions. It strikes me. And one of my favorite quotes in general is from uh, Mustafa Kayari. I think he was a Palestinian person. Uh, he said, the university teaches us everything about society except what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of fundamental question you have to get to and uh, which is uh, seldom broached in the schools. So your your go-to list there is of critics. Uh, but just before I started the recording, before we started, I was saying that I really admired your uh, your piece in your latest book on Spengler. So just an obvious question emerges then. I, I assume that you think you obviously can be truly educated if you are right-wing or conservative. Is that fair to say? Well, 
it's the method that gets you there. I mean, it's the uh, the standards for thinking. And, you know, one wonders what happens as society evolves and the crisis deepens. Are we getting that? Are we getting people who can think, think through the problems as they present themselves and try to figure out where, what is driving them and, you know, what's behind it all? I mean, that's the kind of question. Mm. Mm. One of the things, if I could maybe just go off the path a little bit, I was thinking again about postmodernism and its impact on education, the general cultural impact that it's had. I mean, first of all, you could say that in the 1990s, that was kind of the high watermark for postmodern theorizing, and it's kind of trailed off. But I think it has had a very, very big effect on in society, including including education, the dimming of uh, the ambition, the the dimming, the narrowing of focus, the indeterminacy that comes in, that everything is undecidable. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the totality is totalitarian. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> you know, that comes from the 70s when there was a necessary critique of Marxism, in my view. But if you throw out any possibility of grasping the whole, the totality, mm-hmm. what do you have left? You don't have anything left. You have this extremely uh, lightweight kind of focus. And that's that's one of the main points, <clears throat> I think, with postmodernism. Weak thought. You know, Vettimo, the, uh, the Italian postmodernist. Well, this is precisely a time when we need strong thought. We need to, you know, see what's going on so we can do something about it. You, have you, to think, have we need meta- we, you think we need meta-narratives? Yes, I do, exactly. And by the way, I think there's something of a comeback. I've, I've seen signs of it that uh, explicitly anti-postmodern stuff which I'm glad to see, you know, because we can't shirk the responsibility of thinking, uh, you know, in terms of the whole the whole business, the entire dynamic, the you know, civilization, mm-hmm. fundamentally to me. What we're seeing is a crisis of civilization. The one last global civilization is is a spectacular failure on every level, and yet. Is that on the table? Is that being discussed in the classrooms? Uh, <laughs> I think not. Do you think it's, how to put this, do you think kind of the residue of this postmodern turn in the classrooms, um, in my country and yours, is a kind of superficial criticality then? So we kind of, we talk about gender pronouns and decolonization, but we don't kind of question the ultimate, it seems like what you're talking about there is questioning the ultimate underlying premise here, um, the civilizational one. Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah, that's, that's correct. I'm not saying these other things aren't important, but, yeah, of uh, course. you know, what's the bottom line thing that's uh, affecting everything? So, uh, I'm, but I, I do see signs that uh, people are more willing to well, and of course, reality is, uh, you know, right in our faces. It's, you know, you'd think it would be impossible to not go on to, uh, you know, a deeper questioning given. Yeah. The, I mean, if everything is fine, well, you know, you don't need it. But <laughs> certainly it's not fine. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like the criticality is contained within the Overton window, right? So it's the, it's the level of criticality that is totally... Um, 
totally commensurate um, with um, corporations, right? The corporations don't care about uh, whether they have um, you know the 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 the, the C suite of Coke. They don't care whether the CEO is happens to be gay or black or trans, right? This is this is this stuff has kind of been largely won. These battles have been largely won in terms of the legal quality, and so of course you would expect to see kind of like a bounded criticality, I guess, or, uh, in in uh, I don't know what you call it. It's not even left wing, is it? It's kind of like this is just like um, lowest common denominator liberal thought. Yeah, yeah, that, I think you put it well. Uh, and these issues have involved struggle. You know, there are people that are, you know, marginalized and uh, vulnerable, and all that is uh, can't be overlooked. Yeah, that's. But as you say, I mean, that's you can win that battle. One hopes we can, but also as the entire ship goes under the waves, it's a. Uh, <laughs> you know, kind of pay attention to that. So I was wondering if you could give people, um, the next question I usually ask is to, is to see if you could give people um, a brief overview of your own educational journey uh, up until uh, the present moment. Um, well, I was an undergrad at Stanford and then I've got a master's in history at San Francisco State and I was in a PhD program for three years at University of Southern California, but I resigned before that, uh, before I finished that. And I've been an independent scholar ever since, and I've, I'm happy with that decision. I would have, you know, being a professor, for example, would have, to my mind, taken up too much time. I've been, you know, more free to pursue what I've wanted. And all my books, by the way, are just sort of grab bags. I've never actually written a book. They're just collected essays. Uh, get to the correct weight. <laughs> That's a book. And uh, as with my latest one, uh, When We Are Human. So I've, I've been very grateful to, be, to have been able to pursue this. I know it's a lot harder these days if you're starting out to, uh, you know, I mean, I came of age in the 60s and uh, I learned a lot and things were easier. The economy and so forth was growing and uh, it was just easier to get away with stuff and to go your own way. And I think it's a good deal harder now. Yeah, um, I guess the the credentialism of the university setting um, is something that I'm, sh I'm sure we could talk about, but it's, it seems to me like someone like yourself or like a Richard Dawkins in the, in the scientific sphere, um, who famously, you know, didn't, I don't think he wrote many you know, peer reviewed articles. He just wrote books. Right. And that's how he became Richard Dawkins. Um, and also, I guess, because those books were accessible to a, an, an intelligent, uh, but, otherwise untrained reader um i'm not sure you could do that now the, the pressure you know are they, they what do they call it um um publish or perish right yeah to to get in your your, your peer-reviewed articles um and to do your postdoc i mean it's it sounds like a totally um different world i don't know well if you've got many thoughts on that and the kind of the marketization of the university system in both of our countries well, it's a tall order. I, I have been thinking uh, too optimistically recently that 
we're seeing more of an opening to, uh, well, access to publishing uh, ideas that, that don't totally fit, that go against the grain. But I'm not so sure that uh, that's really the way it is. Uh, you know, it's not wanted, it's still it isn't wanted, even though you'd think, people freely recognize there's a catastrophe that's happening right now. That's, you know, that's just, uh, you see that passing reference in, in various places, you know, not, not that that's the topic being written about, but there it is. I mean, who's going to, who's going to say everything's fine or, you know, or even, uh, well, or difficult, but we're working it out. You know, even though technology blares at, at us at every possible front, you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a given. I mean, who doesn't know that? Who's going to argue the case that, uh, oh no, the future looks bright. You know, everything is, is a positive development here and there. Really? I mean, <laughs> you don't get, what you get more is, yeah, you're right, but so what? There's nothing you can do about it. That's, that's much more on offer, but it still doesn't help the, you know, the, the venues opening up. A friend of mine, Jessica Carew Craft, wrote an amazing book about her odyssey from a fairly privileged place uh, of some some wealth, actually, and and just decided to go the way of green energy, anarcho-primitivism, whatever you want to call it, completely dropped out, was living in a vehicle for a while, just a far cry from the, the rich suburb she came from, hell of a time getting it published. And actually, after much to and fro, it's not going to be published. So she's starting her own publishing house. <laughs> That's one way. But, you know, if you can work out the distribution and the publicity and everything else that mm -hmm. goes with having a publisher, uh, that's we're going to we're going to have to have more of that, I think, just like we're going to have to have more efforts in the field of education in terms of how people learn things, you know, outside of the, the dominant model. What would your dream school look like? Well, you know, I think maximum freedom to pursue things, to pursue things in depth uh, with the help of people with some learning, some experience. And, uh, you know, I think most people admit that uh, the regular school deal is just very repetitive and you, you really you spend years and you don't you don't really learn all that much over time uh, and people you know some people think that the main reason for it is uh learning to obey the bell learning mm -hmm. to internalize time this hidden curriculum idea of john taylor gatto exactly yeah so i don't think it's it might seem like a real tall order to to tackle the subject outside of regular structures, but uh, if it's so, and I think it is so, that a lot of time is not spent uh, learning new stuff, then then it doesn't seem so difficult. It may seem less daunting, you know. There's there's you know there's time and space to do all kinds of things. Not that you have to rush anyone. I wouldn't be in favor of that, but. You know, they, they can be, there can be a lot of choices and avenues that, uh, that kids can go down.
Um, on on this idea of you know the hidden curriculum, uh, obviously very uh, a very prominent idea in Marxist or neo-Marxist circles. I remember teaching uh, pre-university sociology um, qualification, and I would uh, talk to the students about. I think it was uh, Bowles and Gintis and this idea of the correspondence principle, right? The idea that the the schooling uh, corresponds to what you're expected to in in the real world, and uh, you, know, you know the examples of this uh, lesion. So sitting in a in a line um, in in a row, sorry, uh, and you know the factory setting. Um, I guess that would mm. be more of an industrial example, um, but a more abstract one might simply be asking the teacher. Um, you kind of uh, well to go to the toilet, right? Which is um, there's an authority figure there who dictates something as simple as your bodily function, but also just asking the teacher about uh, kind of seeking validity about your an, opi- an opinion on something, right? Not not necessarily factual knowledge. Um, so there's that there's that idea of um, your well, I guess Noam Chomsky would say you know this <laughs> schooling is about subservience to authority and learning how to endure boredom. That's the most cynical view. But I wonder whether you think that actually might be too reductive because like in my country a lot of um um employers either, both from say let's say the trades right and 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 especially like the graduate employers like the accountancy firms or whatever um who are meant to be taken taking like the you know the uh, upper half of the IQ distribution right that both of these employers sets of employers are complaining that actually schooling doesn't do the job right the, these the, the, the kids aren't coming out with uh, uh critical thinking skills with literacy with numeracy so i just wonder whether it's just too easy to rely on that kind of old-fashioned marxist uh, idea of like oh well it's just um you know training for capitalism capitalism's foot soldiers as it were well yeah that's a broad uh, approach uh i think the history of it all is is instructive you know when does public schooling start and you know what is it what was it fundamentally about from the beginning but yeah it's it's you know one one can find a dissatisfaction uh among the so-called oppressors that kids aren't uh you know not equipped to do things and to solve problems and to you know make the firm go forward you know that that's yeah you can find that that's which doesn't really contradict the whole critique or the whole model I mean that that can be true and yet uh it doesn't it doesn't mean that uh there isn't a you know a power imbalance and that people are supposed to just and we see this for example you know it's it's kind of noteworthy I think tech workers you know again educated intelligent people by most standards and they're really dissatisfied. It just seems like the same old sweatshop. It could be textile mills in the 19th centuries, the 19th century, but uh, you know, it's the wonders of high-tech Silicon Valley. It's all supposed to be so. Well, these are the people, right, who modern. develop the apps and design the technology, which they literally, they explicitly say, I don't let my children touch this stuff. Exactly. That, that in itself is just so telling. Yeah, there it is. They know how addictive it is and how limiting it is and how disconnected people are. And, you know, they know all that stuff. And yet... Uh, they, I just feel myself getting know, angry even recalling that. I mean, is that is that not the definition of evil to, to exactly. do something like that, to make millions and be like, oh, I'm not I'm not letting my kids touch this because I know I've, I was the one that you know designed the algorithm. It's just... 
yeah, it's yeah. a level of cognitive dissonance there. I don't know if you you think it is cognitive dissonance, but I can't think of anything else to explain it. It's well, yeah, it's like peddling heroin. I, I'm not going to let my kids shoot up, but I'm, you know, I'm peddling it and and uh, making a lot of money. Yeah, there it is. It's you, that's a very very brief, <laughs> uh, pithy way to put it. Is you know, shocking as it is. So. Yeah, back to your your dream school. And you you mentioned um, freedom um, uh, to pursue, and this this is this really interests me. So I studied um, with I don't know if you know his name uh, Uri um, Uri Gordon. Uh, he wrote um, a book called uh, Anarchy Alive. Yeah, he, yeah, he, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar. I certainly know the name. Yeah, he he was my tutor at university, and. Uh, oh. We, we spoke a lot um, and yeah, he, I, he, I think he's a big fan of yours, but uh, anyway, this, so I, I, this is just to say that, you know, kind of, I, I went through like the anarchist trajectory and I found it very interesting. And um, I'm currently writing a book on um, giftedness in schools and the mistreatment of gifted children. Um, and I guess one thing that I found basically in, in intelligent science in, in, um, yeah, in the psychology of intelligence, there's something to offend the liberal mindset and the conservative mindset, right? So uh, the conservatives will will tell you that uh, again, this is the lowest common denominator version of their worldview or their their uh, what would you say their unacknowledged or unstated premises that you can just get on in life, you can achieve if you just work hard, and obviously if you know anything about. Uh, intelligence and IQ, this is just nonsense, right? Someone who has uh, got an IQ of 85, they're not doing much um, thinking. Um, this seems to be you know, just a biological reality of every species. And then the liberals have this other warped view that you just give people opportunities and they'll, they'll you'll, you'll find some level of uh, quality of outcome. And and, and so all of this is to say, I, I started to um, become hesitant and slightly critical of like the anarchist or leftist um uh pedagogical views that are we, we, it's just it's it's just about kind of um loosening the reins more freedom because actually when you look at the just like just mainstream the most conservative uh well replicated findings in educational psychology and educational neuroscience you find that basically the only people that can benefit from uh like the freya type of you know or Illich de-schooling society, uh, what would you call it? Constructive, um, exploratory learning are the people, you know, a standard deviation um, right of the IQ mean, right? Everyone else does, uh, can benefit from elements of creativity and exploration, but most people learn anything through like space repetition and uh, a bit of rote learning. You think about, you need to know the rules of chess before you can um, play it well. Right, you need to know that you need to have these constraints, and um, yeah, I just wondered if you had like any extra, any nuance to inject into this more typical anarchist view that we just need to give kids more freedom. Because it strikes me that um, yes, that's absolutely true, but it also needs to be, as you say, kind of like a facilitated freedom, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and part of it I think gets back to the technology question. There's uh, ease of access; you can find anything you want. And, but we're seeing this sort of heyday of conspiracy theory and of course theory in quotes, because it just 
says a lot about not being able to sort things out or have the tools to assess what is being said just because mm -hmm. it's on the internet is good enough for some people for sure and so you know if it was just free access as the panacea well well that's that's not the case the, the there's more access now but you could certainly argue that there isn't any more uh thoughtful discourse or cogitation i mean so yeah and you know one thing that overlooks that that i spent a lot of time thinking about and i've got a lot more to go on a topic and maybe this is more particularly north america but the epidemic of suicides among mm -hmm. students among the young is is just so amazing as a matter of fact we lost our granddaughter about a month ago a very very bright kid at, at she's a sophomore at college and took her life at the end of february i'm so very, sorry to hear that thank you yeah it's so i mean and i'm not saying it's always the brightest kids who take the way out you know i can't put up with things anymore but yeah that in itself would be worth to you know determining but there are a lot of and, and at whatever school you want what however much freedom they are allotted because the whole thing is coming apart now and, and they know that they sense that and and this might be more as you know particular to the u.s in terms of for example the mass shootings now students have to i mean they routinely go through these drills when a shooter appears they're supposed to be ready to go to the cloakroom or lock the door whatever role they're trained to do because of all the school shootings and it's not getting better it's getting worse and it's spreading to other countries so i don't think it's just the us although there are more firearms here but anyway the context for being in school for experiencing school is now quite different i mean and that's so you got to account for why is this happening where are these kids uh ending their lives you know and, or and in this country too we have things like the opioid crisis the number of overdose deaths keeps on going up so all these pathologies just striking pathologies impact people in school they're not in school in a vacuum in a bubble somewhere you know they're aware of what's going on and and who's doing something about it you know it's that hits home and you know it, it tempers everything else i think you know it colors everything else that, that's the world they live in and that's the future they look forward to what isn't getting worse you know i mean you could put it very crudely but uh damn you know when i was in school so so many years ago that was that wasn't the reality you could think of some positive outcomes they were pretty much just assumed mm -hmm. that's not true now i mean i'm not saying it was you know it was provided in a in a real sense you know but uh it's a different world what type of school did you go to i went to catholic school uh for 12 years benedictine nuns and then benedictine priests and monks so <laughs> that was kind of medieval in in a way but that was uh you know a long time ago do you think it was a good school um there was some rigor to it um uh, i don't think it was very different from you know the regular ones you know the the non denominational ones really but uh 
you know, you, you took Latin and math and so forth, and, uh, you know, you had to, uh, it's probably maybe a little bit harder work, more concentration needed than some other uh, environments. I don't know. Were you recognized as a good student, as an intelligent boy? Someone that yeah, would go on to try and get a PhD and author God knows how many books? <laughs> well, I, I guess I was, but the, but the twist was, uh, it also discovered, uh, the priest discovered I was behind a lot of the, uh, <laughs> but the, the more, the rowdier kids were actually pulling off that I had a hand in that and they were, they were extremely upset about that. I got slapped around a lot over that, but they did, you know, I was a good student, uh, definitely, but, um, also not exactly what they assumed I was, I suppose. Yeah, one thing, just as, a, as an aside, one thing um, to say about the the opioid um, situation is I, I think something you and I would find a lot of uh, agreement on is to link it back to Silicon Valley. Uh, don't you find it incredible how um, there's, a, there's a push for, for example, universal basic income? And there's this um, evolutionary psychologist called uh, Rob Henderson, who's, I think, I think currently finishing his PhD at Cambridge. And he wrote this brilliant article a few years ago for the New York Post about luxury beliefs. And he said a luxury belief is basically one that is espoused and propagated by the people at the top, right? And it kind of percolates down and has negative effects uh, for the people at the bottom. And the most important part about the luxury belief is that even the people at the top who are talking about it and saying, I believe this, don't actually follow it. So a good one might be, um, um, you know, top 5% of women in terms of, you know, intelligence and privilege and socioeconomic status. Um, a lot of, um, many more of those women now than even 10 years ago saying, oh, yeah, I don't need children. I don't need to get married. I don't need, you know, all of this traditional stuff that, you know, anchors you and gives most people a lot of meaning um and then when you ask them oh so what wh are, are you going to get married and say oh yeah i'll probably get married so it's like this belief that filters down through the culture um obviously uh, a, a, a good example for i guess modern times is uh, uh polygamy you know this is something that can only work for a few people and it tends to be um um in vogue and yeah people think that it's uh, a lot more normal than i think uh um than yeah, anyway, then, then it should be thought of. But I, I think what you can throw into that category of luxury belief is something like universal basic income, which would be just calamitous for the people who are doing the, uh, let's say, the onerous drudgery in society. Not you know, They might not think of it as, su as such, but I think the biggest um, uh, occupational category is driving. And what's the thing that we're working on at the moment? Driverless cars, right? So you've got the automation on the one hand, and then that kind of like the, the, this dialectic where people say, oh, well, the fix for that will be, we'll just, um, we'll, we'll, when, when all of those drivers, you know, the long haul truckers, the ice road truckers, as you have in America, uh, no longer have a job, we'll just give them universal basic income. And then you look at like the IQ distribution and you find, okay, well, a lot of these guys, and they are guys, most of the people who are driving are male, um, are like a standard deviation below the mean. And you see, oh, the correlation between opioid use and uh, you're having an IQ of uh, 80, 85 is very strong, right? So the, the people who are going to be obliterated by 
universal basic income are the people that have just never had the chance to find meaning, generate meaning, and they just in in their lives and it's kind of their their day to day is just like a series of rote actions. Um, and the first thing they tend to reach for when the rug is swept them, uh, out from under them are opioids. Um, I mean, this is this is like it's, it, I I don't understand how we get here. How how you have Silicon Valley. Um, you know, billionaires, millionaires saying, okay, it's, it'll all be fine. We'll just give people money. I mean, people forget that this was a right-wing idea. Like Mil- Milton Friedman was in favor of u- universal basic income. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm rambling. I just wonder if you've got any, any thoughts on, on that. I th- threw a lot out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of undermining of stuff and you can give people checks, but if, if there's no, if you know if there's an absence of meaning, that's always a you know good watchword, I guess. But you know what? One thing we're seeing is is quite a great de-skilling. Yes. Um, you know, and that that has a very big effect. I think I was reading this morning in the New York Times uh, a piece about something called Doll E. It it kind of takes its name from the Disney movie of about ten years called Wall E. Anyway, that I think that's neither neither here nor there. This is something from something called Open AI and what it is. Uh, and I've been reading about this. I've read something about this elsewhere. What it is at base is you tell this artificial intelligence what you want of a drawing or a piece of sculpture or, or whatever it is. You just describe it and this thing makes it. So in other words, People are more passive and dependent on technology. You know, you don't, what would you, why would you need the skill to draw something or to have a sense of perspective and all the rest of it to be able to craft something? When you just tell the machine, you simply describe it. And it had some examples. It had uh, like one was uh, an avocado, avocado uh, shaped like a teapot, very clever. And then it, it imagines it and it creates it. You know, you, you got to think up something. Because, and what will happen, I, I imagine, is that people w- at some point won't even be thinking of, they won't have much imagination. Everything is done now, even, you know, even composing music and you, yeah. you name it. They're making these claims anyway that, well, artificial intelligence armed with the algorithms and everything else will just do it. So there you are, flaccid, sitting on your couch getting less healthy, less autonomous, more unskilled all the time. This is sort of the ground zero of where mm. we're going. And, and, you know, education is just part of that. Who questions technology? It's, it's astounding to me how you see these developments. And the article, by the way, in the Times was talking about how this might be misused or something. I didn't even quite understand that, but, but not the bigger question. Well, how you use it or don't use it, that's one thing. But the much more fundamental thing is, look at this. Is this what you want to take over? Everything else will be more or less along those lines. You'll just sit there. Now people, you know, it's all the rest of it as well. You buy a car or even a house from your couch, staring at the screen. You don't have to get up off your ass and go there and kick the tires or walk through mm-hmm. a room. You know, everything is going in that direction. It's, it's astounding. I don't know. I think this. I'm I'm rambling here, but you know, 
if that's the the ground level of things, then the direction is clear, you know, and it's to me just exceedingly unhealthy. Speaking about the people who are turned to drugs, well, there's all it's not just chemical drugs they turn to. You put on the VR glasses and yes. you know, pretend you're in another reality. You know, it's all the someone like Baudrillard used to talk about, you know, it's it's all simulation and there's no there's no original. It's just copies of copies, and you get further and further from actual physical reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, there's so much to try and unweave here. Um, I find it odd that these Silicon Valley types, right? They 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 will be psychologically psychologically liberal, right? Which is to say, they have the same um, set of dispositions that. You know, uh, uh, I don't know if you still refer to yourself as a, an archo-primitivist, right? But an anarchist would would have, right? And okay, now you might be more of an outlier psychologically, um, but f- fundamentally, there's a, there's an overlap there of like questioning, um, uh, not not necessarily liking things in their in in their boxes. Why has that got to be there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? As opposed to like the more comfortable conservative mentality and like the old G.K. Chesterton line of um, you know. That fence is probably in the middle of the field for a reason, and it's harder to uh, build something than it is to knock it down. Um, so those that that's like the the bifurcation psychologically, right? There, we all fit into one of those two camps, and you know, politics and uh, personality. You know, it, there's, there's no perfect correlation. They are two different concepts. But broadly speaking, I just find it odd that you have these people who are, let's say, psychologically liberal, left wing, and and yet they they the yeah the the thing they're propagating um trying to throw out there something like universal basic income is just so deleterious so um we say insidious when it comes to uh, the effects on the people who are right at the bottom of the food chain right the people who again will have the rug swept from underneath them so i feel like um i don't know it's, it's almost like there's there's a there's a a bubble effect here where it's like if it, the the charles murray wrote that famous book in 2013 coming apart and i feel like that's 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 maybe that's that might be the book of the century right because when you when you live in your silicon valley gated community and you're no longer speaking to uh, you know who's who are the working class people that you chat to what your your server at, at, at whole foods you know, i mean like is you just would have no access to the type of people who you're uh, luxury belief policies um, are going to affect. Is that how you see it? Like this, this coming apart thesis really has um, exacerbated, especially in, in American society. Um, it's, been, it's been exacerbated by I know, um, technology, and I'm, I'm sure we could get into the, the weeds uh, in terms of the causal factors. But do you think that that has gotten far worse in the last decade, and is kind of responsible for a lot of these bizarre beliefs that you see? Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I think that's, I think there's a definite connection. But, you know, there's one seemingly unalterable limit to all this, which is, of course, left out of the picture, is, well, speaking basically about technology, namely, yeah. where does it come from? Somebody's got to be down in the mines. Somebody's got to be the, you know, in the warehouse, the assembly line, uh, you know. The child in the Congolese mine getting the cobalt and... Yeah, yeah, and the, the lithium and the same old story, really. But uh, 
you know, all this is presented as if it floats down from heaven, but uh, yeah. you may not meet these people who do it, but it doesn't exist without these people. And the left, you know, that's, it's something I've never gotten a good answer from anybody, any clearly leftist person on this. You want to go down the mine? You want, you want these millions of people to be consigned to the mines. And, and obviously it's, you know, the economics of it is as part of the picture. They'd be, they'd be lucky to have a job in the mines, you know, in some yeah. context. Definitely, I'm not overlooking that. But And they, they always go, well, uh, <laughs> what do you mean? And, and, you know, and a friend of mine, he used to bring this up and he'd say, I wouldn't go down in the mine unless you put a gun to my head. How about you? You want the so-called working class, well, it's not so-called, I mean, all over the world to do that, but you ain't doing it. Wow, how uh, how radical is that? <laughs> it's like you're the slave owner or something, and you you don't admit it, but you want all this shit, and so you're not willing to pay the price. You're certainly not willing personally to come anywhere near it. You're a nice white collar person of some kind, and uh, you know why not cop to that? I sure as hell wouldn't unless I have to, unless I would starve to death. Otherwise, I'd I'd take a job like that. I've had some jobs like that over the years, mm. but you know. There's no freedom there. That gets back to the question Engels posed to anarchists in the in the 19th century. You talk about freedom all the time. Step into the door of the factory. Where's the freedom? Well, zero degree freedom. And but too many of the anarchists, almost all of them, subscribe to industrialization, mm. mass production, mass society, just like the Marxists. So they had no response. I mean, there there were some. Uh, you know, the News from Nowhere guy, that's one of my very favorite books. Uh, um, Morris. Yes, yes, William Morris, lovely book. Anyway, that's uh, sort of an unavoidable reality there, whether you look at it or not. Because the nice, clean, shiny stuff on the shelves has blood on it. And, and we all know that. It doesn't have, you don't have to think about it very long to realize it. What does it cost? And I was even reading about electric cars. There was an article, now I can't remember the source, just yesterday I think it was, said that overall electric cars are dirtier than fossil-driven cars if you take account the entire process from the extraction, you know, involving all these things to get to your so-called green, clean energy machine. Over time, it is less polluting, but the overall uh, cost in terms of emissions, in terms of all that, is actually worse than your standard car. And everybody crows about, oh, with EVs, everything will be fine. And no, it's the same old deal. Did you ever read that Ursula Le Guin short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas? Oh, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, you, you must read that. It's it's just a few pages, and uh, it is the ones who walk away from Omelas. O M E L A S. I think it's spelled. Um, oh, yeah. It's it's a brilliant. Um, well, I won't spoil it for you, but the uh, the twist is a brilliant way of capturing this uh, this uh, arrangement we find ourselves in, where the um, yeah the the cost is kind of hidden, and what happens when the cost is put in front of you. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely read that. Um, mm -hmm. so the other thing I was going to say, I saw this on Twitter, uh, I think two days ago. Um, there's this very, <laughs> have, have you heard of OnlyFans? Do you know OnlyFans? Um, don't think so. 
OnlyFans is a website um, which is very, very much uh, what would you say the, uh, the reflective of our age. It, it, I think it was started as a way for um, individuals to, let's say, host a course or something, and you can pay me like a subscription fee per month. And you, for example, I'll teach you how to cook, John, and you can pay a subscription fee and you can watch me do that. And of course, it quickly um, devolved into pornography, right? So mm. it became it became a site for um, freelance pornography. And again, the debate became instantly... Um, constrained to, well, this kind of takes the power out of the hands of, you know, the uh, big porn, right? You know, the, the, you know, the pimps of big porn and women are safer. They can do it in, in their own homes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you only had you know, uh, a few voices perhaps now constrained to the conservative um, or traditional feminist side of things where it's like, you know, maybe we should question the underlying premise that, you know, this is corrupting of our soul, and it's only like the top one percent of women who are making a hundred thousand dollars a month. And you know what this what this standard says for the you know, if you're, do you want your teenage girl to be doing this anyway? That's that's the that's OnlyFans for you. And there, the I think one of the highest earning users is uh, a woman who goes by the name of Ayala. It's obviously um, not her real name, and. Uh, she tweeted. She 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 says she's uh, part of the uh, rationalist community, right? You know the, this group of people who think that rationalism is the be all and end all, and you know uh, obviously would f- will be right at home in the probably like the universal basic income um, demographic. Anyway, um, she put out a tweet, and I should have should have got it up ready, but this was totally spontaneous. Um, and you re- reminded me of it. She put up a tweet, basically asking her massive Twitter following um, whether w- why we didn't just make. Uh, AI-generated child porn, because this is the obvious solution, right? This is the obvious solution. We can just saturate the market with AI-generated child porn, um, the obvious solution to, obviously, um, paedophilia. Um, and there are no victims here. There are no victims because, obviously, it's, it's AI. There are no real children involved. And then if you're a paedophile, you can simply uh, watch this and get off and uh, and uh, all, all is good in the world. You can release your you know, your... Uh, yeah, well, your your pent up urges, right? and this tweet got, as they say in in Twitterland, ratioed. It got far more many uh, retweets than it got likes. Meaning, people were retweeting this, saying, "This is just ridiculous." You know, you, you, are you a moron? And I just, I, I replied saying, um, "Pretty sure the evidence doesn't show that this is a good, the, the, the best direction to go." Pretty sure the evidence, you know, psychological evidence shows that uh, you feed something like this, and it just increases the appetite for more child porn. Um, anyway, th- I'm not sure there's a question at the end of this, but I just thought that that was very much you know, a, a beautiful vignette of our times. You know, This person who is a, a self-avowed rationalist thinking through this problem in just the most, yeah, ironically constrained, um, uh, or yeah, 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 set of parameters that leads you to the conclusion um, that, yeah, let's just saturate the market with AI-generated child porn. That's the solution. This is, this is, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, of course, the metaverse now presents mm-hmm. itself. I have a feeling, frankly, it's it's not going to fly. It's just a bridge too far. At least now, people aren't going to get a nose ex- uh, experience machine. Well, I hope not. Of course, but you know, but you can see what's on offer, and all the parts of it have already been around for quite a while, nearly all. But if you you bring this ensemble together. 
it it is a leap forward. It's just well, a leap backward, I would say. But I mean, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of utter estrangement, and uh, you know, the erasure of IRL, you know, in real life, that'll be just quaint. There's there's there'd be no meaning to that. Again, sort of like Baudrillard, but you know, everything will be simulated. Everything is VR, and they're just working on that night and day. And they're already having some successes. There are urban governments in a few places in the world that have signed on to that. Services will be virtual. You know, mm -hmm. you'll, you just tend to be an avatar. You know, it's kind of basic stuff, but it's, it's, going, it's really positioned to displace actual physical reality. I mean, it's, that's just staggering. But there it is. I mean, it's, they're rolling it out in those terms. It's still somewhat vague, you know, because how can you actually translate that uh, in every respect? But yeah, that's just amazing to me that to just uh, absolutely publicly and with all kinds of resources be pushing this. It's, it's another step, uh, a qualitative step, I would say. And, and, and frankly, I don't think people are that far gone. Mm -hmm. to settle for that but everything is conditioning them to be on board with all these different steps you know haptic technology that's that's yeah. one of my favorites you know, touch itself that sense of touch can be replaced can be uh, can be machine made you know uh, that's what the meaning of it is haptic technology that really kind of i don't know takes my breath away that's getting down to some very damn basic stuff where, uh, well, you know, why have human touch? It's already been on the way out. You know, everything is remote. Starting, not everything, obviously, but I mean, before the pandemic, this was well underway. Telemedicine, you know, everything is, you're not actually there, but you, you're supposed to have the sense of being there. And, you know, that's, that's just the way it's presented. I mean, it's not even, they're not even faking that. It's the sense of being there. You're not there. They're not even trying to say something that crazy, but, but the project itself is, is just an, an immense move away from, uh, from human contact. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, if, I wonder if, um, like, I mean, if, I, 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 I get the feeling that your perspective is, one of we are we are frogs most of us are frogs in the um slowly boiling water and uh this stuff happens incrementally right so you you, you know the haptic mm -hmm. stuff it's, it's just you know if i think about my own parents my dad is i think you know, 66 uh mum mum is 59 um you know working class people um dad was a milkman just retired mum was a cleaner um, I think about their kind of like technological evolution from not being able to turn on a computer to now they both have tablets and they kind of like sit there, um, only child. So, you know, very much an empty nest, but they just sit there like with the TV on and they've each got their tablets. So I'm like, this is just, this is, they, their childhood would have been obviously, obviously radically different. It goes without saying, but now like it's um, yeah, very sad. I can't think of any other word uh, to describe it than it's just very sad that, even that kind of like uh, that generation who would have grown up with a quote unquote you know proper childhood has kind of been um, co-opted into the the 
technological totality, perhaps to borrow some of your yeah, vernacular. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's always been the aim of it. Words like the web, the net, it's to ensnare everybody. And so the question, well, a question is accessibility. Poor people can't afford this or that. Well, the real thing, another real thing, not, not the only other thing, but it's more none shall escape. Mm. It's not a, don't worry about you won't get it. You'll have to get it. Yeah. We're, like we're central bank currencies, for example. You, if, if you don't have physical money, um, then that's kind of the the what would you say? That's the the surveillance game is over at that point, isn't it? If we're if if digital money is the is the default. Um, yeah, there you go. And just the fact of uh, well, phones, iPhones, smartphones, mm -hmm. whatever you call them, uh, I won't get one. But now, <laughs> yeah, people say, well, if you're so against it, don't buy one. Stop whining. There's no choice. There's no freedom of choice. I have to have one. We're going to we're going to be traveling overseas in a couple of weeks. You've got to have all that shit. It's not or just to get a job, to be, you know, contacted 24-7, that you're on the electronic leash in so many ways. And yeah. I mean, I remember being interviewed by somebody years ago and he said, Well, you should live in a cave. You're so anti-tech, you should live in a cave. He kept repeating that over and over. Well, I mean, that's kind of a silly thing to say. I didn't create this world. I don't like it, but uh, <laughs> what choice is that? You know, I could sit in a cave. I'm trying to contribute something. And mm -hmm. uh, by the way, you, you got any caves handy? Or, I mean, you know, it's just a dumb thing to say, but uh, that's, anyway, I'm kind of rambling off, but the, no. the, the level of free choice is uh, rapidly becoming a, just an outdated notion. Not to mention surveillance and, and so many other really obvious things. Yeah, so I so I wonder um I wonder if you hold to the cyclical Spengler type view of uh, history and civilization. Oh, I don't know. It's uh I admit to being attracted by really ambitious thinkers. Um, mm. Levi Strauss, uh, Spengler, uh, not that I agree with the total thing, but you know, getting back to that idea that we've got to try to figure out the, the basic stuff, you know, ask the deeper questions, question the, the, the fundamental stuff instead of just letting it float by and we were swept downstream with it. And we're only picking at, you know, trying to reform this or that while the whole damn thing is uh, is a disaster. But uh, I, I'm just so impressed with this, the sweep of it. Just like I, I, to some degree, that's the way Adorno struck me years ago. It was a lifeline. You know, people like that in, in a sentence can do so much. When, if nothing is going on, at least you can still try to think and, and see what, what other people have been able to get to uh, just, you know, writing a sentence that just, you know, can cut to the chase and you don't, and you get that less and less, it seems to me, even as dissatisfaction grows, we, we got to start seeing the, the, the real uh, 
the real F words. That's what I'm trying to do with my radio show. I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, I'm complicitous, of course. I mean, I have a radio show, Anarchy Radio. I've been doing it for 21, 22 years now. It streams around the world. You know, it's, it's nothing but high tech. In fact, I was arguing with the general manager. Uh, she, we were talking about, there was some technical problem. And I, and I said, uh, you keep talking about the radio show, the radio signal, that's, that's sort of a quaint idea. Yeah, you can, you can turn on the radio, but I mean, that's not, and then I found myself thinking, what an irony. I'm almost arguing it's, you know, it's not pro-tech, but I'm taking up that language, that reality. Why are you still talking about the radio signal? <laughs> anyway, kind of a funny irony there, but, mm. you know, you see the way it's going. And that, so I'm, I'm not living in a cave. I'm not, you know, I don't yet have a cell phone and I don't do social media, but I have a radio show and I have a website because of it. I didn't even have email until, well, it wasn't that recent, but uh, I was dragged kicking and screaming into that. And now you simply have to have it. You can write a letter to somebody. They won't write you a letter back. You know, that's, that's, that's gone. You know, um, someone listening to this and knowing nothing about you would, uh, would be forgiven for thinking that you're a social conservative. Um, This is, uh, this is this is what uh, social conservatives talk about. You know, what, the, the the days of letter writing, and you know, we're not you don't get to hug people anymore. And famously, a lot of uh, well, in, in my country, and I think yours, um, a lot of people um, on on the um, on the right were against uh, or, or skeptical, should we say, of lockdowns because of their and you know, sh- shutting schools because of these effects. You know, school children, um, especially. Um, there's 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 stuff that they miss out on um, that cannot be simply uh, replaced or you know, uh, caught up with later down the line. So yeah, two questions. I wonder whether you whether that image, that social conservative image, resonates with you at all. And I, can, I guess the second question is, um, who would you say that your your favourite thinker is, um, or, or the or the a thinker who is most different to you in terms of perhaps where they end up in terms of, I don't know, you could call it policy prescriptions, right? But they, 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 they're someone whose who's way of thought resonates with you. Well, first question, I think that's, it's funny, it's coincidental, but, uh, you know, I don't mind if, if people have similar sentiments about what we're losing. Yeah. You know, we could, on the face of it, you could say, well, that's a conservative notion. You're just, you know, nostalgia that doesn't go anywhere. But I mean, it's also very true that the left has failed utterly in this area, it seems to me. Yes. That have to be ditched if we're going to get anywhere. I'm not on the right uh, by no means, but, you know, like the case of Chomsky, mm-hmm. people routinely say, especially if I'm in some other country, oh, you must be a pal of Chomsky, you know, oh, yeah, he's an American anarchist like you. And, well, we're worlds apart absolutely worlds apart. He's all in favor of more progress with a capital P, more industrialization. Uh, the, the whole cancerous, riotous uh, destruction, he's all in favor of, he calls us genocidists uh, because we want a different world from that. And uh, it never strikes him. Take a look. How is it working out? You, you want unlimited, uh, I mean, it's just craziness. We're not the crazy people. 
he's been very vicious, not very, mm. not publicly, but he's just very, very hostile to me. And um, he, he, I think yeah. that's his general disposition, isn't it? He's a very, uh, yeah, very vociferous. Um, when, when I think he perceives that his his uh, work, not I wouldn't say his ego. I don't think the man necessarily has ego. Perhaps you disagree, but um, yeah, I, I, I I've, uh, I've had a few email exchanges, but I know people that have engaged him as well. Um, yeah, I, I feel like you, know, you, you, for example, like Derek Jensen, you know, talks about talk, talks very eloquently about um, you know, the same things you do, and um, just the internal logic of the system and why something like anarcho syndicalism might not necessarily be this revolutionary idea. You know, simply giving people, I don't know, um, democracy in the workplace is is not necessarily going to fix the, uh, as you say, the underlying um, ecological disaster that we're hurtling towards. And Chomsky will, you know, he, I think he just uh, had an interview in the New Statesman saying we are at the most, he's, he's he, I mean, he's, he's been saying the same thing for you know, 70 years, but again, saying we are at the most dangerous point in human history and talks about, you know, uh, the risk of nuclear catastrophe and um, climate change. But um, when did you say, when did Derek Jensen say, when has when anybody on that kind of like green anarchist side of things said, yeah, let's, we're, we're going to have to uh, start sterilizing people? Yeah. Is it, you, 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 this has never been a, a prescription. You're just simply pointing out that um, we're heading, like Chomsky would say, off the cliff. And uh, do we want to try and stage manage this? Do we want to look for some alternatives? Um, it, it's. It, I find it odd that someone that clever, you know, possibly the most cited living scientist scholar, um, um, what would you say has like a kind of almost like a dogmatism when it comes to. It's, I mean, like, you, you you've never said this, right? But it's the 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 jump is immediately made there to well, that would be genocide. Um, pretty sure John Sersan isn't in favour of genocide. Correct no, me if I'm genocide. wrong, John. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think the genocide is is on offer right now. It's happening. Yeah, everything is is which he agrees uh, with. Well, yeah, he sort of well, he's changed his rhetoric slightly, I guess. I mean, uh, it's it used to be more blatant. Now, I think he can't get away with it. I, I don't know. I'm not trying to psychologize here, but mm. for example, in terms of indigenous, the indigenous dimension, uh, including the anthropology, that has been hugely important to me in my development. He's had no interest in that. He was in favor of the Sandinistas wiping out indigenous people because they were in the way of progress. You know, what was that, late 70s or something? That's a leftist point of view. You don't let these people uh, get in the way of uh, paving over the fucking world. You know, now, of course, he, he can't, I mean, that's that's so witless to use a very soft term, but uh, I think he's changed his rhetoric, you know, just a little bit. But I, and I don't know; I haven't been keeping up on that. But he's he's been very, very nasty to anything that uh, questions technology. Uh, yeah, and he'll probably end up that way too. It's, he's trying to paper over it a little bit toward the end of his life, but uh, he's not trying to undo the basic model that he's always subscribed to. Well, I, one thing that I would like to inject here is I wrote my uh, undergraduate thesis, so, you know, study political philosophy. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on um, Chomsky's anarchism, actually. Um, that must have been nine, nine, ten years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I 
I looked at this question of technology and his famous quote, I'm sure you know it, where he said many, many times, technology is neutral. Right? He says, you can use a hammer to cave someone's head in, or you can use it to build a house. And again, I'm thinking, this guy must have, you know, to go 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 back to my interest in intelligence, this guy must be in like the 99 point fucking like ninth percentile of raw, you know, computing power in terms of like IQ or whatever. And I'm like, what a, what a reductive view of technology to let, let's take the hammer as an example. I mean, famously, again, I looked at this when I, when I wrote the thesis, I was like, what was it? I think Engels, um, and many people since, you know, Langdon Winner, I think, wrote about this in The Whale and the Reactor, said, well, hang on a second. Uh, I mean, you just quoted Engels, but uh, let's bring, up, bring him up again. Um, the factory is not neutral. You know? The factory works through a rhythm, doesn't it? Um, you, you, you can't, you, there's no autonomy there. Um, and I think Winner's uh, famous example was of, was it, is it Moses, the architect, in was it San Francisco? Um, the 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 bridges were designed so that buses couldn't go um, underneath them, and the only people that used the buses were uh, black people. And the buses these are the buses going to the beach, so the beaches remained pure of of uh, uh, pure, uh, you know, white and pure and free from uh, black skin. Um, is that neutral? I, I, <laughs> I, I feel what I mean. I don't understand how someone so clever could reduce things to well a hammer. Do you, do you have any, I don't, I don't want to kind of like prompt you to do some uh, armchair psychoanalysis, but yeah, I, I just, did you have any insight into that question of how someone that um, accomplished, that clever, can be so simplistic in their analysis of what you see, what your life's work is, is, is um, analyzed as the root of all evils? Yeah, I find it staggering. Well, I guess history is full of very bright people who didn't have any mm. values, didn't have any way to get to the heart of things. It was too threatening or whatever. Yeah, there's some other sad cases. Uh, for, if I could throw this out, uh, Sherry Turkle, written all kinds of stuff. Uh, she, she's also at MIT, like uh, Chomsky was. Uh, the The terrible effects on young people especially of the technology, written a whole slew of books. She gave a talk at the University of Oregon here and it was just rather breathtaking with reference to her own daughter, who I think was 13 at the time, who was beginning to not understand anymore the difference between animate and inanimate reality. And just, just one thing after another, oh, this is the fruit of this unrushing enveloping technology. And then uh, at the end, just kind of with a shrug, oh, well, what can you do? <laughs> you know, that's just, it just blew my mind. And I don't usually get up in these talks because they didn't come to hear me talk, but I just had to do it. And I said, you know, that's, that's just utter bankruptcy, ethically and intellectually. You give us every damn reason to see the horrors of this shit. And then you just go, oh, well. Uh, and the, and the, Another question, another question right afterwards, along the same lines, he already suspected what the answer would be. He said, well, do you think you might be in favor of maybe a temporary slowing down of the technology? And she just said, no. And what crap, that's just- Yes, because know, technology is a byword for progress in these people as well. Yeah, even you've, you've spent an hour lecturing us on the hideous malforming force field that it is. 
and especially in terms of your own daughter. And then you just want more and more of it. It's like Nazis were more consistent. Yes. That's <laughs> yes. just disgusting. And actually, when I said that, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, I'm not boasting, but such an obvious point. Somebody had to say it. And it wasn't like, boo, sit down. We didn't come here to hear you talk. And the jerk, mm. you know, no, no. I think everybody could see what I saw pretty much. You know, how do you pull that off? What kind of fundamental dishonesty is that? And, you know, I mean, Chomsky is a, is a repository of a, a wealth of information on statecraft. I mean, he's brilliant on that. But, so how is he so stupid on everything else? And he's not an anarchist, in mind you. Mm-hmm. I don't know really where he's a weak progressive. He never stops telling people they need to keep voting. He's no kind of anarchist, not to mention <laughs> anarcho-primitivist. He just he finds that horrifying, as I've already said. You read uh, Bob Black's famous article on Chomsky. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. And also, do you know, by the way, uh, Anarchy After Leftism by Bob Black? Yes, I haven't read it, though. It's so great. It's so Mm -hmm. witty. It's just, you'll find it a real trip, I think. I mean, it just does the total number on uh, on, uh, Bookchin, on Mary Bookchin. Yeah, he's a he's a fabulous writer. Um <laughs> yeah, uh someone like that you can't imagine in in the uh in the academy. Um but but at the same time a scholar. He yeah. he read everything Bookshin wrote. I mean he's not just throwing out barbs, he yeah. just goes through chapter and verse in a in a pretty hilarious way, by the way. I really respect your willingness to engage um with people who have diametrically opposed views, I guess you kind of have to because you are, you are certainly swimming against the tide. Um, but um, I, I wonder whether you think that there's a kind of always been a, a certain chasm in a, the leftist view of human nature um so you know we, we've we've mentioned lots of examples in this conversation um and you know it's kind of like it's perhaps reached its apotheosis in chomsky's view of uh technology but um you know i was thinking about another one that doesn't really get discussed which is uh, personal responsibility you know there's a i forget the name now but there's a very famous left-wing um working class writer in the uk and i i'll have to send you um his book, uh, Darren something. Anyway, uh, he, he came from a council estate and uh, he, 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 was, he, he wrote this award-winning book. Um, and I think a central thesis of it was um, not only is personal responsibility kind of missing from the from left-wing discourse, um, but it's just... Um, it's thought of as almost like a, a boogeyman, you know? It's like, that's because it's, the connotations are conservative, you know, right-wing, and you must be talking about, like, Thatcher's type of, you know, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like, well, hang on a second, like, we need some conception of this. And again, it just, t- for me, it ties back into that, um, what I guess the central question here, the central thrust of this is, which is just a really naive 
you know, I throw the same thing back at uh, the, the lowest common denominator view of um, uh, conservative view of human nature too. They, there's obviously flaws in each um, model, each mapping of the world. Um, but at the moment, I feel this one is most prescient. It's like a, a total lack of um, um, insight to go back to like Charles Murray's coming apart thesis of what it's even like now to be like a, <laughs> a working class person. And, you know, those working class values, like that's, it's still... At the heart of you know my parents' um, um, uh, ethics, you know personal responsibility, and yet when when you go to when you reach like the upper echelons where the the discourse happens right in the liberal left wing um, intellectual circles, um, this type of thing is is, is anathema. Um, so I guess there's two. I guess I'm trying to like carve out two questions there. Um, um, you know, one one about the the. Naive understanding of human nature, and I guess the second about the reluctance to engage with something which has become, um, yeah, like uh, toxic because it's associated with the Thatcher Reagan um, view of uh, pulling yourself up to you know to get change, the change that you want to see in the world. Well, this question of personal responsibility. I mean, people, I in in the U.S. and I think not just in the U.S. Many people make a fetish of recycling, mm, mm. such that they think they're they think they're doing something to arrest the negative development. Your jam jars are going to save the world. Yeah, yeah, and to the point where, you know, that's it's kind of counterintuitive not to recycle, I guess. But you know, what what is the function of that? It's interesting that nobody, neither on the right or the left seems to ever question that. I could be wrong about that, but um, what if that achieves nothing except to give you a false sense that you're taking responsibility? You know, what if it's one trillionth of the impact of, <laughs> that we need? You're not questioning the other side of it, of course, like mass production, you know, or mass society that, no, you're just burrowing down. I, I, I know people are just Man, they they just could go crazy over the tiniest thing, and and I don't know about this, but there might be studies. I think I actually sort of inadvertently ran across this that the amount of energy uh, expended in in the recycling deal is overpowered by by I mean, when you count it all in. You know the, the trucks that get about one mile to the gallon going around picking up your recycling, and on and on and on the storage of it and so forth. Does it make any difference or even a bad difference? <laughs> That's not, you don't go there. You know, you, you're never going to question that. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not saying that's the whole of the matter of the personal responsibility, but uh, how do you get that? I mean, that's the thing. If you can be accountable and responsible in society, what would that look like? I mean, to, to us, uh, to to some of us, we we it's face to face society. It's small, radically decentralized community, which doesn't exist anymore. You can't be responsible or accountable in this society. Basically, you can't be. You have to call the expert. You have to call the cop or the whatever you know to to take to to fix it. I mean, so where's the personal responsibility? It, it's it really is undone. It's dissolved by mass society more and more, more obviously all the time. 
you know, I, I've spent 15 years in a housing co-op here. It was a great experience for me. And, you know, that I'm not saying it was some radical thing that existed outside of society. Uh, we depended on all kinds of things. But in terms of personal responsibility, if somebody messes up, if somebody pulls some bad shit on people, they're gonna have, they're gonna face the other fifty people in the in the thing. That's where you become accountable. You know, you've got to you got to own up to it. You got to you know that doesn't happen in in terms of the modern mass uh, uh, setup. And Bob Black, by the way, has written some very very good stuff on that too. Is some of his recent stuff. I think not all of it is published yet, but. He compares so-called primitive uh, justice systems with the modern ones, and uh, guess which comes out <laughs> on the uh, on the negative ledger. So that's you know, you know get down to things like that, and and you know there are people that are just they know which side their bread is buttered on, so to speak. You know, mm. you pull down a huge salary, and you get a big publisher, not by doing this kind of work, you know, that <laughs> that's not going to pay off. And I've been told that throughout my lifetime. You're just, you're just wasting your time. What do you think you are? Some kind of angry prophet standing outside the system. I'm not standing outside the system. I'm not, I'm not unaware of that, but I've, I've you know, frankly, I've felt, you know, more comfortable, not completely selling out like, <laughs> like the people that usually tell me that. So, you know, do, you think, do you think something like um, choosing not to eat animals or reduce your consumption of animal products is um, one of the few examples of where you can um, exercise a true ethical kind of sense of personal responsibility? I, I mean, ethical in terms of it, like it's, it's actual outcomes, right? You can, you can probably calculate how many animals' lives you're saving, whereas re recycling your jam jars, as you have just alluded to, might uh, could, could even be counterproductive, depending on how inefficient the recycling system is. I, mean, I think in the UK, ours is so bad that we send it to Sweden, and Sweden make money on uh, how good their recycling system is. Oh, huh. yeah. Well, yeah, there are choices to be made. You've got to navigate all these things. and uh, but if But if your whole model is personal consumerist choices that only goes so far i mean there are people who that's that's the limit of their thing they think it's all fine because i'm i'm shopping green and i'm mm -hmm. you know doing all that stuff I'm, I'm maybe even a vegan um i mean you know i'm yeah people have made better choices than i have i'm not uh, but anyway it, it just goes, it only goes so far. And if you take that as a substitute for, for looking at how the whole thing works, it's, uh, it misses the point. I think there's, there's more to it than that. Okay. Quick fire questions. What's your favorite book, uh, both fiction and nonfiction? Oh, let's see. Well, William Morris's uh, News from Nowhere is a big fave. In terms of a fictional utopian thing, uh, um, dialectic of enlightenment, Horkheimer and Adorno—that's been uh, that's been very good, a very instructive uh, approach to uh, you know being critical. I don't agree with 
all of the Frankfurt School, but it's, I think that's a very strong one um, offhand. What do you wish you knew more about? Oh boy, lots of things. I'm just starting to learn what cryptocurrency really involves. Oh, nice. <laughs> Going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of rethinking, uh, well, not rethinking, but 40 years ago, already God, uh, wrote a piece about number, yeah. which was ended up being kind of a series on origins, uh, origins of symbolic dimensions like time and language and art and so forth and was that first anyway, published in in running on empty no it was uh, elements of refusal my very first okay. book stuff from the 80s so uh anyway trying to learn a little bit more of well for example what's gone on in the past 40 years it sheds a light on on the concept of number and uh i mean a lot of that is pretty obvious a totally quantitative world pretty much but uh, yeah i'm trying to explore that a little more and you know this stuff about the metaverse and metaverse and algorithms and some of it's pretty murky you try to figure out how does that work and what is that <laughs> isn't it amazing you run into people who talk about this stuff all the time but they they'll tell you they don't really know what it means like algorithm what is that exactly you can see what it's supposed to do, but anyway, it's just stuff like that. I need to try to get a little more of a fix on that stuff. So are you going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole first, or are you trying to go down the the more the umbrella category of crypto? Well, I guess both, because they've got a ways to go with all that stuff. But uh, yeah, that is a lot of stuff I would like to be able to do, for example, languages probably too late <laughs> for me for that but i've just i've never been good at learning languages um final question then um what what's your advice to young people and i'll, I'll define young as coming out of school perhaps going into university what do you say to them well that's that's tough i i just keep being struck at how much colder things are, how much, uh, as I said before, relatively easier in, say, the 60s where I came of age. And uh, now what you can get away with is much less in terms of a lot of things, bankruptcy and, uh, um, you know, they've, they've just tightened up a whole lot of things overall over the past many decades, it's just a harder deal. And this, the stuff I resorted to uh, is largely gone. I mean, uh, how you can live with pretty much no money. Mm. Uh, that was kind of easy. Uh, so I don't, I don't know what to tell kids. I just, you just have to keep uh, open to possibilities and look for them as you try to navigate the the thing with fewest uh, injuries to yourself and uh how do you well how do you get to do certain things you know without paying a terrible price it's uh it's i'm not very equipped to address that so much has changed and and of course technologically too so yeah i just 
try to be supportive and try to imagine how it is now, but uh, it's very different for, uh, you know, in terms of my life history. Do you think we could just offer a bit of pragmatic uh, pragmatic advice and say, turn your, tone off, t- turn your phone off? <laughs> right. Yeah, I've been reading about this stuff that here, I don't know how, maybe mostly anecdotal, but the switch from smartphones to dumb phones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The switch toward landlines, keeping landlines. And somebody said to me, well, it's all technologies, dumb or smart. And I know that. I mean, yes, you're right. But, but there, maybe it's a good sign. Maybe there's a little more willingness to to think about it and to refuse, the, you know, the being just swept along by it all. I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I get the yeah. feeling that there's kind of going to be like this out that this uh yeah this outpost this kind of uh little subsection of humanity that. Yeah, you know, is, is well aware of this stuff, like the Silicon Valley CEOs who don't let their teenage daughters, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are just who are just going to you know go back to look. There's no TV. There's just a piano, right? And you can have a violin if you want it, and uh, you can listen mm-hmm. to the radio, but uh, and you can read as much as you want. Um, but you're going to go outside for a few hours each day, and there you go, which isn't happening much. That that needs to turn around too. But I just find it hard to think that people are going to settle for such a denuded empty barren landscape it's just getting worse and worse and we we see the toll people are not happy within it yeah yeah god nothing could be more obvious but in general terms you know all these markers so uh you know so i'm holding out hope that it's just going to there'll come a time when people just reject it yeah and And as you've said before like the living standards you like the pinker steve pinker view of the oh, material wow. progress like even that's starting to taper off right so you've you've spoken before i know about um life expectancy and, you know that 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 benefit is proving to be potentially short-lived um you've, you've yeah. spoken in this conversation about opioid use and we know that suicides and mental health is just yeah yeah the impact especially on the young and some of this bottom line stuff even well longevity itself it's getting to be a more and more unhealthy place and uh, it's got to give at some point or not. I mean, who knows? Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Matt. This has been very cool. I appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for being so, uh, yeah, so gracious with your time. We've been speaking for nearly two hours. So I will. Amazing. um, I didn't think it was that long. Yeah. Well, Well, good luck with your work.